Hello and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. We are a global open access multimedia channel that brings you the latest research updates in oncology. We were thrilled to welcome the experts on our first ever lung cancer sessions to discuss the most important learnings in lung cancer from the ESMO 2020 Science Weekend. In this panel discussion, ESMO President Professor Solange Peters from the Lausanne University Hospital was joined by Professor Martin Reck from the German Center of Lung Research and Professor Sanjay Popat from the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust to review the exciting updates in the field of lung cancer from ESMO 2020, including advances in oncogene-targeted therapy, post-operative radiotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer, and advances in immuno-oncology in non-small and small cell lung cancer. Dear colleagues, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this first lung cancer session on VG Oncology. We'll try to cover the main topics, and there is some subjective matter here, uh, which were discussed, which were presented uh, at the ESMO 2020. Uh, we hope that this would potentially compensate or at least help uh, in circumstances where we didn't have the opportunity to uh, debate, to discuss, to share the feelings we had after the presentations together. So the idea of today is to try to have this discussion virtually. It's my great pleasure to have with me through this discussion, two friends and colleagues, Martin Reck from Großhansdorf in Germany uh, and Sanjay Popat from the Royal Marsden in London in UK. My name is Sonos Peters and I'm working as medical oncologist in uh, Lausanne in Switzerland. So we can dive into that and uh, we have many I would say chapters that we can cover during this, uh, this uh, ESMO meeting. And maybe the first chapter, which is the usual one when we discuss uh, new data, uh, is the first one of uh, oncogene addiction, uh, molecular targets, uh, actionable targets. And uh, I think the most important one in terms of still building new evidence might be this very small niche of the ALCRI arranged on small cell lung cancer. Uh, we have been seeing a series of compounds uh, replacing crizotinib time after time, uh, seritinib, alectinib, brigatinib, and we were and zartinib, uh, and we were strongly awaiting the data from probably the strongest one, uh, the ones which we handle with a little more difficulty, which were the lorlatinib in the crown phase three study against crizotinib, uh, and uh, this data to me. Uh, were questioning myself, of course, about frontline strategy because I was surprised by the magnitude of benefits from lorlatinib as compared to crizotinib and as compared to what I was expected, probably as compared to the previous data presented. So my question to you both and one after the other one, maybe uh, Sanjay first and then Martin, what do you think about this opportunity of changing again our considerations about frontline strategy and also, what we know from lorlatinib is it's a wonderful second line or even third line compound. So we like it. We like to have a, a next ID, something in the pocket. So do you think that the community will put the best first, decide for the best first, or keep you know this reserve or this uh, subsequent, cho subsequent choice also because of toxicity profile? What do you think? 
Yeah, thanks a lot. It's really good uh, uh, question. I mean, I think uh, you know, Crown has taken this all by a bit of su- surprise because of the magnitude of benefit. Um, the you know, this was a randomised trial of lorlatinib versus crizotinib in frontline patients with metastatic up positive disease. Chemotherapy wasn't allowed, and uh, the hazard ratio uh, was 0.28, which is spectacular uh, and well. Um, but uh, uh, you know, so much better than what we've seen previously with brigatinib, uh, ensartanib, and alexinib, which is all around the 0.45 uh, uh, mark. So on paper, you know, by far this is the the, the most potent drug, and we use it up front. Um, but there are there are questions which I think we need to consider. Um, First of all, if we use it up front, what is the resistance mechanisms and what are we going to use next? And whilst we have a better understanding of the resistance mechanisms when lorlatinib is used as a salvage drug, we don't really have a good understanding of what the resistance mechanisms are next. And so will we be able to sequence additional ALK inhibitors? Are we sacrificing progression-free survival gain for a lack of overall survival benefit. So you could argue that maybe, whilst we've got 70% maturity in this data set, it's a relatively mature data set, maybe we need to wait a bit longer to see what's happening with overall survival before we, we make the big switch. And then the big issue is handling some of the rather unusual toxicities that we see with uh, lorlatinib. Uh, 90% of people get dyslipidemia and will require some sort of statin usage. And around 40% of people will get cognitive or mood effect changes, uh, which can range from no problems whatsoever to very mild to, to moderate or even severe. And all of these things need to be considered, particularly if patients are going to be on this drug for quite a long period of time. So I think there is a debate. Uh, for me, it's not a just it's not a slam dunk uh, uh, winner. Uh, there is a debate, um, and I very much look forward to what Martin thinks. Yeah, you 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 spoke you evoked two points which are quite important. I think the first one is that these data, on the contrary of small talks, are quite mature for PFM. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not that it's, you remember the uh, brigatinib data came very early. Yeah. These data don't come very early. They show you the PFS. But you spoke about OS, and it might be another parameter to help us deciding because we have OS data from Alex, from Alectinib trial. Mm-hmm. The other thing you spoke about mood, cognitive, uh, speech problems, which might, of course, be of importance for the quality uh, of life. And resistance mechanism. I remember Alice shortening that what you like with Zolatinib is to get resistance, you always need a kind of a combination of several complex mutations. So she was hoping that this cumulative events would happen with a lower probability. But of course, it's still very hypothetical. But that might be why some hopes might be put in the, in the game. But I see Martin doing like that. So Martin, what are your thoughts about uh, adopting Crown Data and Zolatinib Frontline? Well, I, I, I think I completely agree with Sanjay. So, so um, the, the data are really impressive, but that there is some discrepancy between the, the use in daily clinic and the data, in particular when we talk about tolerability. And, and yes, you talk about the, the potential psychiatric or neurological problems, but there is the, this problem of edema, hypertriglyceridemia, and just to remember, the patients are taking these drugs for years. And, and I have some experience where this really caused some 
decrease in quality of life and, and while feeling. And this is something to put into consideration when we treat our patients for years with targeted agents. So uh, I, I still like this as a reserve drug, as a second line opportunity. We have the lack that we do not have sequential data for, for the sequence of different agents. I really was blown away from, from the brain data. And when I look to the time to progression, there we do see a hazard ratio of 0 0.07, which is really amazing. So the brain activity um, of this drug seems to be really more than expected with any other drug. And, and so in particular, when I have patients with, with disseminated brain metastasis, where I came to an end with my opportunities of brain irradiation, this certainly would be something on my list to, to look for. But again, what comes next is a practical problem besides all the trial data that we have seen so far. So it's, it's really amazing to see this data we need some more maturity. You mentioned the Alex survival data, which are also very, very impressive. Five years survival data that we haven't seen so far. And I think we need some more maturity on the overall survival and we really need a good look on the tolerability. It's not only the grade three toxicity, it's also the grade two toxicity, which will cause an impact on the quality of life on the individual patient for a long time. Yeah, so Alex data we still at five years the median OS not being reached, right? And a hazard ratio of 0 0.6 something, so very nice data. Um, importantly, just two things. At resistance, what we have been seeing, it was published in the Lancet Oncology and later on in JCO by, by the group of, of the Lorlatinib phase one, two trial. What is interesting with Lorlatinib is you can give it irrespective of the mechanism of resistance. It worked well in ALK uh, yeah. mechanism of resistance, but also in what we call ALK independent mechanism of resistance. Probably a bit, a bit better when you have a resistance mechanism dependent of ALK, but in both scenarios, which is a nice opportunity. I had a, a little talk with some colleagues from Israel. What they do in Israel, they give first alectinib, then brigatinib, then lorlatinib. So my question to you is today, coming out of ESMO, so the take-home message, what is still your, I would say, attempt to treat ALK-positive patients? What do you ask for to the insurances? You ask for lorlatinib or you ask for lorlatinib in second line only? What is your, or in third line, what is your current strategy today? So at, at, at the moment, I'm uh, not starting with frontline uh, lorlatinib. Uh, for me, it's a very good salvage agent, particularly for intracranial uh, disease. And frontline uh, electinib or brigatinib are very reasonable frontline options. Uh, and I think the strategy that you propose with starting with electinib, using uh, brigatinib next for intracranial salvage, uh, and using lorlatinib as a third line agent is a perfectly rational uh, approach. Uh, in that setting. Yeah, I agree. So I think that still the opportunities of alectinib and brigatinib are very strong first-line opportunities also in terms of tolerability. So patients are well for a very, very long time with a stable disease or response of the disease. So this still would be also after ESMO 2020, my, my first choice. Perfect. Thanks a lot. Let's switch from ALK to GFR. We have to do that. So we have been seeing at the plenary session at ASCO and again at the plenary presidential session of ESMO that there is a role for TKI undoubtedly to be discussed in the adjuvant setting. 
in the early disease as a complementary technology technique strategy after the standard of care. So without negotiating the standard of care, should be fully resected, should be adjuvant chemo, but later on adding ozimertinib was bringing an amazing hazard ratio in terms of PFS improvement in stage 1b, in stage 2, and in stage 3, knowing that the um, trial design of the ADAUGA trial was focusing on stage 2 and stage 3 based on the 7STM classification. But amazing data, completed at ESMO with the very early data set, showing that some of the benefits is related to a wonderful control at the brain level. This was quite expected in the fact that, of course, uh, ozimertinib has a protective effect on the brain. But is it enough to complete the data sets to convince everyone that all patients with EGFR mutated tumors, which are large enough or have lymph node invasion, should receive ozimertinib in adjuvant for three years. And Martin, I give you the word because you're also in Germany, a country where the drugs come very rapidly into your yeah. So are you ready as soon as it's gonna go through EMA to use it in the adjuvant setting? Well, I would say this this is a very convincing signal. Uh, and, and, and I also can tell you, we, we had various debates uh, on a national and international level, how to interpret this data. And, and there are a bit of concern whether this really is a better cure for the patient or whether this is just a prolongation of, of the progression due to the mode of action. And, and there are a couple of questions still around. So I would say, um, this is a second step to, to implement this. I would love to see some more mature information on overall survival. I'm a, I'm a bit puzzled from the Chinese data. So it's a different trial design, I have to say, but I would like to see a little bit more on maturity on overall survival. And the other point is, and, and I think this is not clearly answered by this trial, is the question whether we still need adjuvant chemotherapy in patients with EGF receptor mutations, yes or not. Whether we are able to substitute the chemotherapy by osimertinib. And I think this is still an open question, which hasn't been resolved by the Aura trial. So I would say we are on the way to prepare the stage for osimertinib. We need a bit more information. You open a risky chapter here because the role of chemo was not the question of the trial, yeah. right? And that's the reason why it was inadequately uh, addressed, right? Yeah. So this study, even retrospectively, it would be probably, to my opinion, a little too uh, precipitated and too, too fast to tell that chemo might be forgotten about for some patient's population because obviously chemo was led to the investigator according to local standards. Yeah. And uh, it was not a randomized strategy there. So that's yeah. one thing that I like uh, Sanjay to comment on. And the other thing is about the CITONG data where a first generation TKI was improving PFS, but not OS. Does the story of the brain change something? Because of course, first generation TKI have very limited efficacy in preventing brain damage, brain lesions. So does this change something into, even if the OS is not statistically significant, does it change the picture, the fact that the patient can stay away from brain meds for a longer period of time? Sanjay? Yeah, thanks. Two questions there about the chemo and then the uh, OS. So, I mean, chemo is very provocative in this data set. Um, but as you point out, Solange, you know, it was given uh, as per investigator 
uh, routine choice uh, with patient discussion. So there are many biases which go into those uh, patients as to whether they had chemo or not. And I don't think we can really say from this data set that patients uh, that were given osimertinib can do without chemo. I mean, that's a separate question for a separate trial, uh, and we need to investigate that further. Um, all we can say for this setting is that there is a very, very, very strong signal of efficacy for osimertinib in patients after routine treatment uh, with surgery plus minus chemo. Um, so for me, this, this, this data did really just s cement the, the magnitude of efficacy that we've seen uh, with Adura. And, you know, the big difference between this and the CETONG and the previous Radiant trial uh, was the intracranial uh, problem. So in Radiant, uh, we had a big excess of intracranial progression in the EGFR mutation positive uh, data set. And that, for me at the time, was really surprising because we were using these drugs with patients with CNS uh, uh, disease, often with very good control. Uh, so to see CNS as a site for preferential progression in radiant was really quite troubling. Um, now we have a signal of that in CTONG as well in the in the in the JTO article of sites of uh, metastatic disease. But to see that the sites of uh, uh, brain relapse, the frequency of brain relapse with Adura was markedly reduced from about ten percent. 1%, I think, uh, is really uh, another driver for the uh, magnitude of benefit that we're, we're seeing with, with osimertinib. Uh, you know, I'm a bit uh, skeptical as to whether we're going to see much in the way of overall survival benefit here. The, the trial was poor. Well, the, the data were released very early. Um, that we wasn't very mature in terms of the numbers of um, relapse events, and there will undoubtedly be significant crossover uh, uh, with the arms as patients progress. So, um, yes, we do need to see much more mature data, but I think because of the early data release for uh, progression events and because of the high levels of likely crossover at time of metastatic disease, I'd, I'd still be very surprised if we saw uh, much of a meaningful survival benefit. Um, so I think, you know, the data is the data uh, and, you know, we're not talking about a DFS of 0.8 or 0.7. We're talking about a DFS of 0.18, which is a complete order of magnitude different uh, to, to, to um, other data sets. So I do think it's very, very compelling. So take on message. You will discuss it with your patients at least if you have the opportunity to deliver the drug. Uh, Sanjay, Martin, Martin? Maybe not. I would discuss it, but uh, I would not substitute chemotherapy based on that data. So I still would go on with, with the adjuvant chemotherapy first, in particular when I have a locally advanced stage, uh, when I have patients with, with mediastinal lymph node metastasis. Uh, but I think afterwards, this could be a reasonable choice. I think one of the questions is the duration of treatment. Do we really need this three years? And, and we do not have any data to support this from a scientific background. So this is like immunotherapy. We are doing this, but I think we need a better rationale to, to, to use this time frame. Absolutely, the financial consequences of that are huge. Knowing I asked the investigators why three years, it's supposed to be about the kinetic of relapse. However, it's financially a real burden that we have to take into it. Yeah. 
Let's stay in the, in the local uh, disease, in the early disease, because there was this strongly awaited trial, uh, the lung arts. Uh, just to put it in the context, there is still a debate about the role of radiation in patients with stage 3 disease, completely resected. Uh, it's a matter of debate because there are a series of retrospective studies showing yes or no that uh, adjuvant mediastinal radiation in addition to a complete surgery, an adjuvant chemo, would help and promote a, a longer survival. There are contradictory data, but the majority of these meta-analyses were probably showing some benefits in terms of preventing local relapse in the mediastinum, but also uh, potentially affecting survival. That's the reason why some countries, for example the US, have adopted adjuvant uh, mediastinal radiation in 3 and 2 disease as a standard of care. I even participate in trial where it's mandatory to do that if you have a stage 3 disease resected with an N2 proven, right? So it's interesting. In the neoadjuvant setting, we had published it in the Lancet, chemo radiation surgery versus chemo surgery with no benefits of radiation. So in the neoadjuvant, it didn't look like to add something to a good local treatment, I would say even an optimal local treatment. And at the time we concluded it was a Swiss group trial that one well-performed local therapy is enough. So one strategy locally, but it has to be optimal. And the lung art is asking it in the other sequence, if you do a complete surgery, according to Hamiporta, so no uncertain, no capsular invasion, no R1, but R0, if you do that, and if you give what you have to do with chemo, do you add something or less or not with, uh, with radiation, adjuvant radiation? Unfortunately, the answer is maybe you have a non-significant effect on, on disease-free survival, of course, you might prevent some relapses locally in these lymph nodes in the mediastinum, but if anything, toxicity added, toxicities added will shorten the survival uh, slightly. So the, I think the conclusion of this strongly awaiting 11 years long art trial is telling us stop doing it and amend your protocols. So are you going, did you change your guideline? What were your guidelines to both of you? And do you immediately implement a mandatory change when you see this trial at the limit of a detrimental effect of a strategy on survival, Martin? So I, I think definitely. So uh, I, I first, I really have to congratulate the investigators for this trial. I think this is the first prospective trial asking this question. And we really have waited for a long time. And uh, there are some, some really very unique features of the trial. The majority of the patients was staged in a very adequate way with PET-CT, so we, and we had confirmed in two disease. So we really had a good documented patient characteristics, a good staging and updated staging system. So I consider this signal as extremely valid. We have the discussion about the radiotherapy we have seen changes in, in the opportunities of radiotherapy in the recent 10 years, a development. This is still a point of discussion, but overall, we have a couple of sites in Germany where we use this post-operative radiotherapy as state-of-the-art in, in resected and two disease. So, of course, we have to, to change our guidelines rapidly, and I know that this is also the case in a couple of European countries. So, this is really a landmark trial. And this is a trial which really changes our therapeutic access to management of stage 3 disease. 
And uh, I think we really have to individualize our indication to use post-operative radiotherapy in selected patients, but we have to define the criteria in the future whom, who are the candidates for this kind of post-operative treatment. So I think for me, this is one of the most important trials of, of the ESMO this year because it's really a practice-changing trial. That's why we took it in presidential because yeah. the presidential is only trials which are usually positive because they change the way we treat patients. But this one being negative, it also changes the way we treat patients. Yeah. The other topic, maybe before Sanjay, you give your opinion is there will be probably a, a second life for surgery uh, in Northwest Island Cancer related to all these neoadjuvant IO trials, which I'm sure will give nice results. So this trial is even more important. At the point, probably surgery will be a little bit gaining some interest in the future. Do you share this opinion and what's your, what's your feeling about lung art? Yeah, thanks. I mean, lung art, I think, is one of the most important trials that we've actually had presented for many years. Um, you know, all of us have been debating in our routine um, multidisciplinary meetings postoperatively whether patients should have radiotherapy uh, or not. And finally, this trial, which we've all supported and recruited to, has answered this question really quite definitively, is that there is no um, significant benefit. The benefit is small, if anything, uh, but the risks are high with an increase in uh, cardiopulmonary toxicities and increase in second malignancies uh, with the radiotherapy. Uh, so uh, out for, for routine care, no, I don't see a role now for uh, adjuvant radiation. The real question is who does need it? And, you know, I think this brings in a, a separate question about uh, high-quality surgery. Uh, we do need to make sure that we follow the quality standards for surgical resection as set out by the ISLC and Rami Porter's excellent um, uh, paper. We do need to start collecting the R uncertain status uh, because this undoubtedly uh, reflects prognosis and actually is a quality indicator as well. Uh, and the, the more we collect that status, the better we understand the extent and um, magnitude of the resection that's been possible and the risk that's been ascribed. Uh, we have to remember that patients with extranodal disease were not allowed to go into the trial. They were excluded. So I think for that group, there is still is a role uh, for uh, radiotherapy as long, uh, alongside patients with R1 uh, resections yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, I think the, work, the, 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 the field has moved on significantly, um, but we're in a new era now with neoadjuvant treatment starting to come through. And we're starting to see data coming through with um, neoadjuvant immunotherapy, either single doses or three doses, or uh, as the Spanish group have previously reported in combination with chemotherapy. And I think you know, I, I very much look forward to the, the, the trials which are randomized, which will start coming through next year, I think, uh, reporting on this because they undoubtedly are highly active. Uh, and the field, the most important thing I think I've, we've learned from this uh, neoadjuvant immunotherapy uh, era is you can have activity with only one dose of checkpoint inhibitor. And the imaging does not correlate with the pathological findings. And that puts us in a very difficult position. Uh, you know, how do we manage these patients preoperatively? And I'm sure we'll have much more debate uh, over the next few months. Yeah, thanks a lot. So we need to move to, uh, for the next last five, ten minutes, we have to immunotherapy. But interestingly, this was not 
the meeting of immunotherapy for lung cancer. So we went into small niches, if you uh, if you accept the wording, right? Uh, describing the impact of immunotherapy or precising the impact of immunotherapy. For me, there are two niches I'd like to discuss. First of all, the uh, very high PDL1 expressors where we could see a, a set of data. Uh, of course, the update uh, of the five-year survival of the keynote 24, the new trial with semiplimab, so the Empower One trial. And I like the Japanese trial trying to combine pembrolizumab and bevacizumab. So it's all in the niche. It's 25% of patients who already have this intersection of interferon gamma signature and a high PDL one So this, this opportunity of giving a treatment which is chemo-free uh, for a long period of time. So I'd like you to comment on this uh, small niche and about your standard of care. Are you satisfied without chemo? Martin, are you satisfied without CTLA-4? So this is an important... Yeah. Start with this topic. Uh, maybe Martin, you... you, yeah. you also, no. I want yeah. to... You also presented the uh, patient-related outcome of 9LA. So there's a relevant question about CTLA-4 there. So what do all these data tell you? I think they are telling us we have to look for a new staging system in, in lung cancer. So, so we have histology, we have the different biomarkers, the PDL1 status, but we also have some clinical features. And it seems that these clinical features of, of the lung cancer are driving our therapeutic decision, whether we are satisfied with the monotherapy, whether we need a combination with chemotherapy, or whether we need the four drug combination like seen in the 9LA. And we are just at the starting point uh, with, with coming to the, the Keynote 24 data. I think there were really three impressive results. And number one is really the, the five-year survival rate. I have looked on, on all the registries for five-year survival rate in stage four non-small cell lung cancer. All the trials are ending their surveillance with two or three years. So, so in Germany, the normal five-year survival rate is between five and seven percent in stage four non-small cell lung cancer. So I think these are really uh, interesting data to show a five-year survival rate of, of nearly 32 percent. The other point is this part of the re-exposition, the second cause. So there were these 12 patients who received the second cause of pembrolizumab, and again, there was a response, and in a third of them, there was a stabilization in half of them. This is a clinical signal, which we also have seen in the second-line trial. And the third signal is the tolerability. So when we look on the 39 patients who received the two years of pembrolizumab, the profile was exactly the same that we have seen in the ITT. So the incidence rate of the grade three and four immune-mediated uh, associated toxicities didn't change. So it was safe to give the majority of the patients the two years of pembrolizumab. And I think for a group of patients, this is a really good opportunity showing the patient-related outcomes, the quality of life, the situation that these patients remain stable for a couple of months after the two years of pembrolizumab. So this is a really new chance. And I think the, the Empower One drive data with the Tamipiplab went in the same direction. We have seen the same signal for OS and progression-free survival. We need some more follow-up. And uh, I think this is one type of patient with a certain tumor where we really can control the disease with the monotherapy. The other point are the patients with more dominant tumor diseases, which request the combination from my eyes, but we need more data to support this. 
Sanjay, are the semi-plimab data even better than the PEMBRO one? Because when you look at the, the, the absolute numbers, they are extremely promising, but of course, with a shorter follow-up. Uh, and the other thing is, what do you think about this bevacizumab combination, right? It's a provocative trial, but uh, we, we're looking for better options in this kind of setting too, right? It's a slot of the portfolio. So the, the Zimitnabab data were you know, very impressive, actually. I was very surprised to, to see such a strong hazard ratio for overall survival and progression-free survival, bearing in mind there was crossover that was allowed in the trial. So, you know, patients that were, were on the IO monotherapy were allowed to cross over to receive chemo plus IO. And similarly, people who were on the control arm of um, chemotherapy were allowed to cross over to receive IO. So despite really quite, quite significant crossover, we already have a strong hazard ratio. Uh, so I'm very impressed with that. Um, it's, it's very difficult to make cross-trial comparisons, and I don't think we can say that you know, any drug is any better than, than, than one other by looking at uh, uh, across the trials, but certainly simiplumab has, has very good um, efficacy in the Empower one uh, data set that was uh, presented. Uh, but can we do better? I'm, I'm sure we can. And, you know, combining VEGF inhibitors uh, such as bevacizumab with uh, checkpoint inhibitors is a theoretical benefit, and I suspect there is a um, efficacy, efficacy benefit as well. The Korean study showed very good uh, activity with the combination of carbotaxel bev plus nevo, but, you know, there was quite a high grade 3 hypertension rate, which we need to bear in mind with that combination. In fact, when we look at the Japanese uh, WJ uh, OG study, uh, the phase two study of combination ATIZO and BEV, of course, we see, still see very good efficacy, but we see the same signal of hypertension uh, uh, coming through and much more hypertension than we would expect with bevacizumab uh, alone. So I think this is a very encouraging um, couplet, bevacizumab plus uh, single agent immunotherapy. Uh, we need to be mindful of how the tox pans out in, other, in future trials, uh, but certainly simiplumab is a, a very active agent uh, looking at that randomized phase three trial. Yeah, as uh, yes, it was Atizu and Bev. Sorry for the, I said Pembro, I guess, before. <laughs> Atizu and Bev. Um, it's important to correct. Uh, it's uh, quite important for the Empower trial to um, keep in mind the two particularities which were not very clear during the presentation. The first one is the smoking habit. Only smokers were enrolled, and remember that even if in all trials the GFRN alt patients have been excluded, still we usually have a remaining 10% of never smokers across trials that were excluding from this trial. And as we know from the neoantigen and TMB story, it might impact the final results. The other thing is about brain meds. Brain meds were all treated unstable, like in all other trials, on the contrary of a little blood message. However, what they accepted is that the waiting time between the end of radiation and the beginning of the treatment was more fitting the daily life, the daily practice, right? Usually, I don't know about you, but we don't treat, right? When you have finished the radiation, you quite fast go ahead with your systemic treatment. And this was uh, more like that in that trial. So fitting the objectives of showing safety and efficacy as soon as possible. So I think that there are two important features of the semiplimab trials, which might make the results slightly different also right and we have to keep in mind so last thought i'd like to discuss with you is small cell 
So with uh, all, all of the community, we've been trying to move in small cell in uh, the maintenance setting with uh, the Checkmate 451, uh, with EP or Nivo, in the second line setting with Nivoluma versus Topotikano, Amrubicin, always seeing, first of all, negative trials, formally speaking, but also always seeing the signal that there is a benefit in a small proportion of patients. We can see it with non-proportional hazard ratio, but the population of patients we are strictly unable today to identify. So basically, we know it might benefit strongly some patients, but it's impossible to see who they are, and they are not numerous enough to change the paradigm of treatment, right? Very frustrating because uh, the science here is still completely insufficient in helping us and guiding us there, right? You can also see with this kind of a very strange statistic analysis that I like, this piecewise had a ratio, where when you go into the first three, six, even nine months of this strategy, you see that chemo or whatever is better than I.O., but if you look later down the road, suddenly you have a very strong hazard ratio in favor of these selected patients benefiting from I.O. So if I go into that, there was a stimuli trial, and I had the pleasure to present it on behalf of, of, of ETOP, European Terrestrial Oncology Platform. You both participated in that, uh, and it was showing the same. It was limited stage small cell lung cancer. It was after completion of a very strict standard of care, radio, chemo, PCI, which was per protocol, so very strong standard of care and difficult protocol, uh, trying to maintain, consolidate with EPN Evo. And same thing, this is a negative trial. However, when you look at survival, which is a secondary endpoint, my feeling is we will see the same thing. Some patients will become a long-term beneficiary, will survive to a larger extent than expected, but we don't know who. So what do you think about all these small cell data beyond the frontline chemo atizo or chemo durva? What do you think about future, future development of IO in small cell and stimuli trial? So maybe uh, Sanjay to start? Yeah, thanks, Solange. I mean, stimuli is a really important trial because it really sets the pace for limited stage disease. You know, everybody has to get a standardized treatment. We've sort of become used to trials which are a bit more real world where they recruit at the end of the chemo radiotherapy. But to have everybody having the same uh, schedule really gives you a very homogeneous uh, group of patients. And, you know, unfortunately, there was no um, uh, PFS benefit, but there was definitely a signal there of perhaps an overall survival uh, um, uh, signals starting to come through with a non-proportionality starting to become more obvious with the more follow-up. Unfortunately, in retrospect, the, the Nevo OP dosing was probably a bit hotter than we'd like uh, now that we've got a better um, understanding of the right schedule for um, uh, thoracic malignancies. But, you know, we, we're seeing that in the metastatic setting, there's always a small proportion of patients that result in the tail of the curve. We have no idea how to predict these patients patients up front. This is the biggest frustration that we have. But undoubtedly, there's a bimodal distribution of patients. Those that don't derive any benefit, we can't predict who they are. And those that do derive benefit, and we can't predict who they are. And I have no doubt that we will see exactly the same thing in the limited stage setting in bigger trials uh, in the future. So for me, uh, stimuli is a fantastic study. It's really set the field. This is the beginning of the chapter of limited stage small cell lung cancer. I'm very much looking forward to more data as it comes through. 
Martin, what do you think about this trial? And what do you think about this landscape of, of small cell? Because we are a little accumulating the, the disappointments in, in terms of positive. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, coming back to the second line, when we look on the Checkmate 331, where we compared Nivo to Topotecan, what we have seen was, as you mentioned, there is a group of patients benefiting, and we have seen a consistent efficacy of, of nivolumab independent from the fast-progressing or the non-fast-progressing tumors. So there is a signal in a group of patients independent from the efficacy of chemotherapy. And currently, we are not able to describe these patients. This is something we really need to define in the future. For stimuli, I have to say, I was more than disappointed. So I think this was my specific for small cell lung cancer, and perhaps one of the reasons has been our traditional invalid staging system for small cell lung cancer. So even when we say we have limited stage small cell lung cancer, this is a heterogeneous population. It's not adequately uh, determined as a stage three non-small cell lung cancer. So this might be N2, N3, very bulky tumors, very uh, fast progressing tumors. We are all covering them in this substitute of limited disease small cell lung cancer. So perhaps this is one of the reasons that we have a mixed population there and, and we have to be a bit more precise also in small cell lung cancer in determining our populations we treat. However, so far we really cannot derive any guidance from the stimuli trial to describe a target population for, for uh, this immunotherapy. So I, I'm hoping for the upcoming translational analysis that potentially we will be able to describe this long-term survivors. There is clearly a signal of survival in some patients, but um, we, we have looked for pd one we have looked for TMB. They are not su sufficient to describe this group of patients. So. We need a new idea, but I agree to Sanjay. Currently, we are just in the beginning. We are not able to describe these patients. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you How would you guide uh, both of you uh, if you had to to potentially two things? Right. Imagine what would be you think the way to improve outcome with immunotherapy in small cell extensive disease? Would it be to combine new modalities, stronger immunotherapy? Uh, add some radiation. So what would be your favorite, it's completely subjective, huh? your favorite strategy in extensive stage to continue to move this field beyond what we have? And what would be your advice for limited stage? Should we give up, wait until translational data? So we've been towards your key home, take home messages for small cell, um, Martin and then Sanjay. Well, for extensive, uh, I have been a little bit frustrated with, with all the second line and maintenance concepts. So I, I truly believe if we want to achieve something in extensive disease, small cell lung cancer, we have to throw it in a first line concept. And this is currently on the way. For example, we have the tiragolumab combinations uh, investigated in small cell lung cancer. This is an opportunity with a new concept of an immunotherapy combination. I do not believe that we can achieve something in subsequent line of this disease. Mm -hmm. For limited, I think uh, we, we, we have to rethink about the concept. And, and, and I like, for example, also this discrimination system of Charles Rudin to look a little bit more 
in the deep of small cell lung cancer. So small cell lung cancer is not small cell lung cancer. We do see different genotypes potentially also associated with differential response to immunotherapy. We are just in the beginning, we have the first data sets, but I think also for limited disease, we have to dig a little bit deeper to identify the different characteristics of, of, of these patients in order to define those patients who potentially might benefit from this very aggressive multimodal treatments. And uh, I, I agree with those, those thoughts entirely. I mean, for, for me, in the metastatic setting, of course, adding in the new checkpoint inhibitors is the way forward. And I fully agree that, you know, there's no point in, in experimenting in relapse small cell lung cancer. We have to um, add in new drugs in the frontline uh, setting. Uh, for me, one of the biggest questions that still remains unanswered is what is the role of um, palliative radiotherapy, the REST type of radiotherapy that is entirely excluded in all the registrational trials. Uh, but certainly in Europe, it was very it's very popular with uh, colleagues. So how do we integrate this? Does it have any benefit at all? So, um, you know, for me, I think this is a very uh, open question that needs to be uh, answered. In the limited stage setting, you know, we still need to wait for the trials that are enrolling to read out, but we need to search for biomarkers. In non-small cell lung cancer, we started to see signals that HLA restriction and the MHC genotype may impact on benefit, and I would certainly want to look at that uh, in small cell as well because it, the, the, the mechanisms will undoubtedly be very similar. Thanks a lot. I, I think we covered the most important topics from this ESMO 2020, uh, trying to catch up with these discussions. And I thank you both for uh, your uh, messages, which will be very important for the community. I also uh, thank VG Oncology to help us and support us in these difficult times. Uh, thanks to both of you. Stay safe and um, all the best to all of you. Thanks for listening to us. Thank you for listening. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver expert-led content to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.